Welcome one and all to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm your other host, Tane Kell. You know, Wade, we really have another amazing episode for the audience today, don't we? I know. It probably sounds like a broken record, but today we're going to continue our series of, of interviews on topical subjects, things that are in the news, things that are in politics. And today we have a special guest in studio to talk about our topic, nuclear verdicts. Again, Fair warning, I will mispronounce that word before we finish. <laughs> uh, it's okay. But, as I said before, presidents have done it as but well. But this time from the plaintiff's perspective. That's right. So today we are fortunate to have uh, a, a friend of the podcast, an FOP. Uh, we've got Lloyd Bell from the Bell Law Firm. Uh, Lloyd's a plaintiff's attorney uh, who specializes in representing victims in medical malpractice cases, and uh, which is you know right in the wheelhouse of what we want to talk about um, over the past decade. Uh Lloyd has achieved more seven and eight figure medical malpractice uh, verdicts than any other attorney in the state of Georgia. So kudos. I know who's buying lunch. Um, <laughs> earlier, earlier this year, in fact, um, and I remember when this one happened, uh, Lloyd obtained a $75 million verdict for a young man who suffered a stroke following a chiropractic neck adjustment. He is only the second lawyer in Georgia history to be invited to join the Inner Circle of Advocates, an invitation-only group of America's top 100 trial lawyers. So, Lloyd, it is so good to have you here, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you, Tane. It's great. It's great. Studio audience. <laughs> Studio uh, audience. Studio cannot audience. hold okay. back their right, enthusiasm right. for it. So well, I appreciate you. Let me let me come on board. This is a lot of fun. It's good absolutely. to see you. Absolutely. Good to see you, too. Well, So you want to do the disclosure that Lloyd has his own podcast? Yeah, Lloyd has his own <laughs> podcast. Uh, called Everybody's Fa podcast. Called Face the Jury, Face the um, jury. which is, is a great podcast about trying cases, essentially, trying, trying jury trials. It, it is. It is. It's more public facing. Um, it's designed really to educate the public more about medical malpractice, how to identify it, how to protect their families from it, really how to be a patient advocate and protect themselves. So it's, it's not for trial lawyers exclusively. It's more designed to help uh, the public understand this area. That's awesome. Well, uh, if you'll get in touch with Wade's agent, I am sure that he can <laughs> yeah. easily be obtained for a small fee to be. Yeah, my secretary case. will be happy to. Yeah. Schedule him <laughs> well, well, listen, Lloyd, there, there's a phrase that's got a good deal of press recently and, and, and particularly in, in past months. Um, and it's the phrase nuclear verdicts. And I know a lot of people have heard it in the press and a lot of people, uh, you know, use it to describe what they call extraordinary type verdicts. Um, I've mentioned in our previous uh, episode that we did uh, concerning this, uh, the Jim Butler verdict that everybody's you know kind of heard about, the $1.7 billion verdict that, that came out uh, last year. Uh, but there's also been a lot of others. Your $75 million verdict, for example, has been referred to as a nuclear verdict. But when plaintiff's lawyers hear that phrase or when they talk about that phrase, what are you talking about? And what does that mean to you? Well, the, the term nuclear verdict is a, is a relatively new phrase and it's, it's it carries a lot of political baggage because really it's a term that is designed to create an impression of the public that juries are getting it wrong and they're coming out with these 
ridiculous, uh, unsustainable verdicts that are destroying the country as a nuclear weapon, as a, as a weapon of destruction. So it's a political term. Um, it's gotten a lot of uh, traction uh, by defense interests, uh, a lot of defense law firms and uh, lawyers at prominent insurance defense firms talk about nuclear verdicts to try to curry favor with insurance adjusters and try to attract uh, more files and more business showing that they're really fighting the, you know, the scourge. Fight the good fight. That's fight right. the good fight. But yeah. when, I, when I hear nuclear verdict, I, I, I think, and first of all, well, what are the facts of the case? Uh, you know, were there, were there nuclear, well, that was, were there that nuclear was one damages? of the things that we talked about earlier is it's become a definition of anything over 10 million. And it's like, well, what were the specials? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. yeah, one of the special what the damages facts? were eight or 10 million. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and what was the liability? And, yeah, and, yeah. And, how, and how did the defense get it so wrong as to not get the case resolved before trial? Well, a, a, uh, a very valid points as well, because you, you need to know the whole history of how that verdict came about. That's right. That's right. And uh, my big concern when I hear that is that it's a it's a precursor a lot of times to when the state legislature is coming back in office and they're trying to sort of advance. Well, I've heard the, it. I've heard it in that context. Sure, sure. And the idea is, you know, we've got a real problem in Georgia. Of course, Georgia is the number one state to do business in the country. But at the same time, they say, but we still have this horrible problem uh, that we have to address. So when I hear it, I take it with a grain of salt because they're not talking about the nuclear verdicts. That's a defense verdict. And there's a young mother with a disabled child who's not going to have the funds to take care of them. That's a nuclear verdict in the life of that family. But of course, that's not what the Chamber of Commerce is talking about. Well, let me ask from your perspective, is this really a phenomenon? I mean, because one of the things I talked about with Wade and Wade makes fun of me when I come out with these kinds of things. But I said, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with this psychological theory that's called Bader-Meinhof, which is, okay, you know, just two German dudes. Yeah, it's two <laughs> German dudes that just hang out together. It may be one German dude. It's hyphen. I don't know. But um, but but anyway, Bader-Meinhof, which essentially is just, you know, you say, hey, uh, gosh, it seems like that um, I see so many stalled cars on the interstate these days, you know, and then and the next day you're driving on the interstate and you count, you know, 30 stalled cars, which you never noticed before. And it's just it got called to your attention and now you start to notice it. Is that what we're talking about here, or is there really some trend out there, either in the state or nationally, that you know that, that's that's a legitimate thing? I, I, I don't think I, I do think that there are more large verdicts that we're seeing. That we, that's just that, I think that's just stark reality. And I would not call those nuclear verdicts. I think there's a, a number of factors that influence that. I think the biggest one is that, particularly after COVID and in our politicized world, jurors are just less tolerant for bad behavior, and they are less likely to just you know let a, a company or in my case a lot of cases I deal with are hospitals and hospital groups they're just not willing to give people a pass for bad behavior they're 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 I think part of it is uh, that they want to feel powerful that they have felt powerless being locked down and forced to wear masks and all this kind of external uh, effects that this is a chance for them to exert power and to make one small gesture to making the world better. And I think that's part of the influence. It's kind of the way the jury speaks about what's going on globally and globally. I mean, in their world, in their sphere. Is that what you're saying? It, it, it is. But, you know, juries are not. Um, I mean, when you, you do hear about the large verdicts. Those make the news, those make the front page. Well, front page of the Daily Report today is a series of medical malpractice defense verdicts that a very fine firm, Huff Howell Bay, uh, has achieved over the past year. So uh, defense verdicts are not quite as sexy. They don't get the headlines. They don't bleed out into the regular media, the AJC and others. But uh, 
If you believe the statistics, over 90% of medical malpractice trials result in a defense verdict. Wow. Um, and, so, uh, so this phrase, nuclear verdict, I, I've never heard nuclear anything with a positive connotation. I think it's <laughs> exactly. a negative connotation. Exactly. Right. I think that's part of, the, part of the reason it's being bandied about. So if you don't want to use that phrase, I understand, but I think just for the just understand I'm going to use I'm going to use it for the purposes of the podcast okay yeah, of course what's the recipe you you get a case that comes into your office and after your evaluation what is the 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 recipe hey this has the potential to be an extreme verdict as opposed to a nuclear I don't want to get lost on the term what's the oh, recipe uh, well the recipe to to is case selection and when cases come in you start in medical malpractice you start looking at the damages first you don't we don't even get into the medical records we don't get into analysis of negligence you know what are the damages and if it's you know, a young child that's going to have permanent disabilities, or if it's going to be a person living in a wheelchair or with horrible brain injury and 24-7 care, that tells you that the damages are profound. And then you go to the next level, which is then, did everybody, you know, is there some negligence that led to this? Or um, So it's kind of the way we, we, we view cases. Every case is not a nuclear verdict potential case or a large verdict potential, but, um, you know, we try to be selective because there's only so much we can you know, cases we can take. How much does it matter where the where the venue is? Venue is incredibly important. Um, it is a, it is well known in medical malpractice circles that if you are trying to take a case up in Rome, Georgia, Floyd County, any place in the mountains up in up in Gainesville, very conservative, uh, very pro medical community. Um, and I just want to say this quickly too. I'm very pro medical community as well, which surprises people. I'm the son of a doctor. I've got a lot of medical folks in my family, uh, and people are like, "Well, are you trying to get back at your dad? You know, what's <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's get, and, uh, let's get and, uh, you on a couch and <laughs> exactly the guy with like, the no, pipe. Not at all, not at all. Um, but my dad was very against bad medicine. Sure. And um, unfortunately, there is a percentage of uh, of uh, bad medicine out there. In fact, there was a study that came out from. Um, Johns Hopkins number several years ago that said preventable medical error is the third leading cause of death in America. Let that sink in. Wow. The yeah. third leading cause of death wow. of all causes, right. not just medical related, mm -hmm. but preventable medical error. So, um, Kind of went down on a tangent, but uh, no, that, no, that's but, but, but venue is very important. So I obviously, we'd rather be in the cities where you have more diverse uh, jury populations to draw from. Do you have a map on your wall? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, the green venue, zone, the blue venue, zone. Yeah, yeah. Really, no, no, it's a very case specific. Yeah, we, we actually go all over the country, but most of our cases are here in Georgia. I, I'm also interested in do you do you think that um, jury composition ha has anything to do with this? I mean, obviously the purpose of Wadir is to figure out what, you know, the best jury for that particular case is. But, uh, but, you know, is there some magic in jury composition that you think contributes to verdicts that are because larger? they changed that law? I don't know. 10 few, years 10 ago. Years, maybe? Yeah. Just how we're getting old. I know. Right? <laughs> I was on the bench. I know yeah. That, but yeah, it was, it was probably, um, uh, yeah. well, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, the, the Dunning Keurig, um, bias or you know cognitive bias that that's identified there are other cognitive biases that lawyers carry around like baggage and uh just instinctively they'll say well if a you know african-american juror is going to be better for me um, i don't want an asian juror i mean these are just biases that have rattled around um in 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 circles for a long time the defense has them too you know we only want you know business people we only want 
And uh, my personal view is that people are more than, uh, obviously more than their color, their profession, where they grew up. Uh, what matters is identifying their values. That is why it is so important to have a robust, open jury selection process that people can reveal what you know where they're really coming from, what their the biases are. I enjoy listening to y'all's podcast, and I know that y'all have uh, had a robust discussion about this. <laughs> and I was I was actually participating in your podcast, uh, not as a guest, but by yelling through my headphones. <laughs> we, like, get that a lot, <laughs> we get that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and <laughs> we were afraid that a lot of people run off the road. Yeah, or, or off the treadmill, or on the treadmill here. Uh, yes. I enjoy y'all's podcast very much, you, and, um, and 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 I. I, I did have some different perspectives on a few points. Sure, but sure, there's sure. a lot of things we agreed on. Of course, y'all have a judge's perspective. Yeah, I have the perspective of a. Of a well, litigant. let me run something up your flagpole that you haven't heard okay. because it literally was recorded a few hours ago by a, another lawyer, and I've got a funny feeling it's going to be one of those things that you can concur with. He said, "Look, we understand that judges don't aren't trying to do void our, you know, for hours and hours and hours. If you would let us." In, a, in the proper case, use a questionnaire, a pre-trial questionnaire, and get the responses back. We don't have to ask as many questions. But if you don't allow us to do that, we have it would be malpractice not to at least ask the questions that that help us identify the biases. You, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I've used questionnaires before. Some some judges allow them. Um, the biggest problem we run into with logistics. Because at least in Fulton County, um, it's very hard to get any biographical information on the jurors until they show up literally in the courtroom. So logistically, I've done it once before with uh, Judge uh, Tom Campbell. You might remember, senior, senior judge in Fulton County. He's retired now, but he, he was open to it. And I, I made my case and he let us do it. Um, but logistically, it's very hard because you got to get them all out to the folks. you got to give them time to fill them out. Then you got to give get them copied, copy back. back, and then you have to have time to look at them. So it can't be too long, but they're very helpful if, if you can do it. If them. you can do it, you yeah. like it. Very, very much. And I think the defense does too, because obviously they're looking for things that uh, would give them concern. And but, I think, I th understand, and we said this at the, at the prior recording session, one of the things we're concerned about is questions that generate answers that infect the whole panel. Well, I'm going to push this, back on that a little bit. This respectfully. Yeah. That's what this questionnaire process eliminates that problem. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, Thanksgiving dinner, get together with the family. Um, maybe everybody there at the table does not agree politically with whatever the issue is. Right. Um, You've met my family. Yeah. <laughs> you may have met, you met mine. And uh, there, there might be one or two people wherever they are politically. And everybody wants to argue with them. Everybody wants to change their mind. Does that person get their mind changed by the time they get to dessert? It, unless you've got a very special probably family. Probably not. Probably no, not. No. Jurors are no different. Juror, I, I don't believe this, this idea, this sort of bias, that jurors are subject to being tainted. Now, there may be some exceptions, but just generally. Like if you insert insurance well, or something. I mean, you know, it would be something that. I don't know. If it was a high profile case and there was some specific fact of prior conviction, I mean, just something really. But but in terms of people change their mind because they hear about insurance or they hear about, uh, you know, if you ask them about uh, how much money they would consider in a verdict, for example, I don't think um, y'all are were big fans of that question. Um, 
But it's important because some jurors come in and they say, well, I would never come back with more than a million dollars, no matter what. Well, if they can't follow the law, then they can't. They're not legally qualified to serve on the jury. So I do think there's a role for, uh, you know, for probing questions and this idea that everybody else is going to be tainted or influenced. I really personally, I really don't believe that happens just because people are people and, and they're not willing or able to give up firmly held beliefs easily. Let, let me back up and ask, because we have a lot of judges who listen to this podcast, at least we think we do. Um, <laughs> I better be it careful. Was, it, was the whole, it was the whole point originally of the podcast. But, but when you talk about a, a robust um, you know, process, what are the things that judges can do to, to facilitate that? I mean, to make sure that we have sort of a, a, an open process that allows you to get to the kinds of questions that you think you need to get to, to, to identify biases that jurors might have. Well, it seems like, uh, and this is obviously a legitimate concern, but it seems like the primary concern that judges have about jury selection is it taking too long and annoying people and imposing on, uh, imposing on the panel and totally legitimate. Um, but what I think would makes it the most efficient is to let the lawyers do the do the lawyering in the jury selection, and for the judge to sit back and say, "Okay, you have a period of time, and I'm going to give you a chance to ask your questions, have immediate follow up." I think that's very important. I mean, you ask a panel of sixty people in medical cases, you ask somebody, you know, you ever been a party to a lawsuit? You get three or four hands. It's so much more efficient just to go to them right then and say, "Well, tell us a little bit about it. Well, it was this that." not related, nothing, no further questions, and then just keep moving forward that process. And then let the lawyers have that role and then give the defense the opportunity as well. And then, you know, three or four hours later, we should have a jury. Uh, but when, when the lawyer judges require questions be pre-submitted and require this very rigid approach of, you know, everybody raise their auctioneer paddles, <laughs> one, two, three, and it's, it becomes a note-taking exercise. Right. And then, and, and it just drives jurors crazy because it just takes so long. Um, I really push back on that. But, you know, sometimes judges agree with me and sometimes they don't. But I, I found that the most efficient way is I call it the open way of a discussion. <clears throat> Get people, lower their barriers. So they actually give you useful information and uh, let you intelligently exercise your strikes. I, I, as a lawyer, I remember very well you know, I, I wanted to engage the jurors as much as I possibly could. You know, I wanted to essentially kind of get in their head and find out what, you know, what made them tick and, or at least, you know, what was going to make them angry or what was going to, you know, engage their emotions in a way that I either wanted or didn't want to, uh, to do. Um, a lot, I did find a lot of judges would just cut that off. You know, you, you wouldn't wouldn't allow you to have kind of a, a conversational. Now, uh, to be fair and to speak up for judges, because you've kind of flipped on the you, you flipped teams here lately. Yeah. <laughs> um, on behalf of judges, some lawyers think they have this is their comedy stand up hour. Yeah. And, and, and they've got jokes and they're cute and they're funny. And so, you know, it's like anything else. Probably some abuses have ruined it for everybody, you know. But but to be fair, go ahead and you were Kate Tane wasn't asking me that question. He was asking you that question. <laughs> yeah, no, wait, come on. Man. Well, I, th I think I think you know obviously the judges have to see what's go actually going on in the courtroom. But a one size fits all is just I think the the wrong approach because like you say, some lawyers can be annoying and try to ingratiate and 
sitting up on the bench, that has got to be uh, just uh, Maddening. brutal Maddening. to sit there and listening to this. And it's like, oh my gosh. But, but, but you've heard it so much. Remember, the jury has never heard this before. I mean, those people who are showing up, this is all new to them. So it doesn't seem canned or, or tried or whatever the approach is. Um, what I always talk with younger lawyers and trial seminars and whatnot is you have to be your authentic self. You can't be up there faking it. You can't pretend you're yeah, we've had that conversation. I, I just went over that with my class yesterday. Yeah, I mean, we talked about opening statement. I was like, you can't pretend to be somebody you're not. But it's sort of a conflict, though, right? Because you are, you're, you are in a role. You're an, you're an advocate, and you're trying to present yourself authentically. Well, by definition, that's sort of inauthentic, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So, but so you really should strive to be your best authentic self. Just be on your best behavior, your best manners, be kind to everybody. That includes the defense. I think that always gets some eyebrows with some of the younger plaintiff's lawyers is that the most effective you can be in court is when you show kindness to the defense, to the de defendant, and recognize that they're people who are struggling as well. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Do you think that, that when defense lawyers or defense tactics, I guess, where they don't admit liability, for example, when in a case of clear liability and, and they, they find themselves arguing over, I don't know, things that may, may have the lawyer losing some credibility with a jury. Do you think that hurts defense I think cases? That, I, I can. I think, that, I think the jury is willing to give more rope to the defense than they are to the plaintiff. Uh, we are not equal in court. I think they look at plaintiffs and plaintiffs' lawyers who are asking for money, who are here, you know, asking for a verdict with with suspicion. I think they're much more forgiving of defendants. I mean, I've seen I've seen defense lawyers just blatantly misrepresent things and say up is down and down is up. And we think that the jury's gonna be mad about it. And then we talk to them later and be like, well, you know, um, they're just doing their job. They're just fighting for their client. So I think there's more forgiveness, frankly, on the towards the defense, but uh, there is not on the plaintiff. If you are, if yeah. you have to play it straight and if you hide something or, or not hide, but if you just don't, you're not forthright, uh, it'll come back and really bite hard. You, you talked about a minute ago, we touched on it a little bit, but, but how do you deal with, I guess, Preparing, I, I've never, because I didn't do, I did some plaintiff's work, but I didn't do a ton of plaintiff's work and only tried a handful of plaintiff's cases in my career. How do you prepare a jury to give a verdict? I mean, because you said a minute ago, you know, you want to know, could they ever give a verdict in excess of a million dollars? How, how do you go about that, you know, in a, 
put aside judges intervening and saying, well, you can't ask that. But I mean, how do you, what are you trying to do? How do you, how do you get to them to, to get them to do that? You're, you're trying to, you're trying to align their values with the values of your case. Okay. That this is not some other person who's got problems that aren't related to you. So you try and show that the, that the, the situation that the plaintiff experienced is a situation that is aligned with your values of personal responsibility. If you can show that the plaintiff has worked uh, extremely hard to get back as much function as they can, that they're not whiners, that they are um, good people, hardworking people, family people, and have the shared common values of the community on the jury, then you're a lot further down the road than otherwise. But it's when the jury sees the plaintiff as uh, unrelated to them. So we talk in terms and we, we invite the jury to look at our plaintiff as a neighbor. We talk in terms of that. You know, we are all here together because we have a dispute uh, and you're here to resolve it and, uh, and just try to lower those barriers. You're just kind of humanizing and, Humanize, and doing those sorts of yeah. things. It's all about values. It's all mm-hmm. about shared values. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more in common with the jury and an injured person, a wrongfully injured person. And they start seeing themselves in that situation and what they would do. And, you know, we don't, Cross the line of the golden rule, right. of course, but we do want we do invite the jury to see the humanity in our case. One last thing, and then I know you want to talk about reptile theory a I bit, do. but, but <laughs> um, do you think these nuclear verdicts are indirectly probably punitive? That they are that they are be where the jury's trying to punish the defendant. Well, that's certainly true. When they're punitive damages, sure, sure, of course. Right, of course. Um, but, but it's hard. You know, jurors don't put all everything in a silo. Uh, just human beings have a hard time to do, doing that. We're, we, we look at things holistically. So if there are what we call hot facts or, uh, or red facts, sometimes we'll call them, uh, that drive emotional response, that drive anger, uh, that certainly can bleed over into a compensatory section because jurors are not robots. They're human beings. And if they, uh, the, the, the case we talked about earlier, um, the $75 million medical malpractice case, one of the defendants who was ultimately found liable uh, was found to have altered a medical record after he knew about the bad outcome. And you can't do that, right. obviously. But he went back next day, changed his record, put some self-serving stuff in there. Wow. And those are the kind of facts that the jury, uh, they may not see it as punishment, but the jury is going to be more motivated to return a full compensatory verdict Mm -hmm. in those situations. Well, so let's do talk about this theory that I've heard about. I actually find it fascinating because I, 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 things that have to do with human psychology, I just think are really, really fascinating in the context of trial. So let's talk about reptile theory and, and kind of how it can be used and that sort of thing. But, but before we do that, why don't you kind of tell us to the extent you can, um, what in the, profession that that theory is or what it means or well, how, where it comes from that sort of thing. The, the, the term reptile theory uh is a is a trial strategy approach that was coined by uh the two sort of uh inventors of this uh, david ball and don keenan mm-hmm. who came out with so-called reptile revolution and the reptile refers to the part of the brain the amygdala which is the survival mechanism in the brain the rep, the reptile brain yeah the, the most fighter, basic part the of fight our or being. flight yeah and, and the and the general concept was uh to uh, frame your case in such a way that the jury sees the behavior of the defense directly related to their safety and the safety of the community. Um, it's a, it's an advocacy approach. 
Um, I'm, I'm curious if y'all ever saw the motions in Lemony to try and exclude the quote reptile. <laughs> and y'all I were didn't, looking at but but in my jurisdiction, in fairness, you know, state court sees a whole lot more. State court, yeah, we, we saw some, especially in Augusta. I was talking to, to one of the state court judges in Cobb yesterday and asked him that question, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I just did one of those motions. You know, I just just saw one a week ago." And, and I've, ne- I've never seen a judge grant one because most of the time the judge is like, "What are you talking? What's the evidence? How motions eliminate yeah, evidence, evidence. <laughs> right?" And um, I, I think. I think I think it's overblown. I think the defense fear of it is they're sort of chasing their tail on this now. I mean, it's good advocacy, whether you call it reptile or anything else, to you know, focus on the safety rule violations, you know, focus on the parts of the case that will resonate with the juror's own personal experience. I mean, nothing's new under the sun. And you, know, you have the, the basic three tenets of advocacy, ethos, pathos, and logos. Well, the pathos is the, you know, the emotional piece, the um, and and reptile sort of speaks to that, you know, the emotion behind the case. But you still have to put on, especially in medical malpractice, you have to put on a a logos case, a logical case that is in, in, internally uh, consistent. And then you, of course, you have to have uh, the ethos, the personal credibility you bring as an advocate. So, I, I think um, you know, their defense is shadow boxing a little bit, uh, you know, uh, uh, with with the reptile. So I, 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 I just can't imagine being a judge and being asked to rule on a on a defend on a trial strategy of a party. I just right. it's just how do you rule well, on the a trial strategy? The particular judge I was talking to said that the response of the plaintiff's lawyer in his case was, I don't even know what that is. So you can grant their motion if you want to, because I'm not <laughs> I'm not qualified to engage in that because I don't know what you're talking about. And I, I think it was a little facetious what he was saying. But what he was saying was. I got to try this case the way I have to try it. I'm going to try it the same way, no matter what. And so, do you do you think this whole nuclear verdict thing? Sorry to get off of your reptilian no no that's world. Is it a pendulum swing or is it a trend? Um, when you say nuclear verdicts, I mean I will I will accept that you're talking about significant verdicts because I, I do believe there are more significant verdicts now, uh, significant plaintiffs' verdicts than there have been maybe in five years ago. Um, is that because of inflation? <laughs> maybe, maybe some of that. Uh, well, you know, you, you do make a point that uh, we are getting conditioned to hearing larger and larger numbers. And I think a lot of that came out of the, um, you know, the uh, uh, government um, handout or payouts for um, during COVID, you know, helping people talking in terms of you know, trillions of dollars of debt, billions of dollars, you know, people on the news saying 400 billion is not enough. We need 800 billion. I do think there may be some conditioning of folks who, you know, you hear people talking about playing the lottery and they'll, they'll joke and say, I don't even take it seriously until it's over a hundred million. It's only 40 million now. <laughs> so yeah, eventually because 40 would real change money. your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah exactly. 40 so, wouldn't, wouldn't touch so, my life. So I do, I do think, I do think maybe there's uh, a, a different view of money in some ways and big numbers since we hear so much of it. But, uh, you know, a courtroom is the place to address that, though, as you know, and the jury hears some very good defense lawyers and uh, you know, they'll come back with a defense verdict if they think you're not proving your case. So uh, how is how is this trend, uh, if there is one, how is that affecting the ability to settle cases? Does it make it harder or people pushing back and, and not settling cases or are they a little more vulnerable, feeling a little more vulnerable? And so it makes it easier to settle cases. I can speak mostly about the medical malpractice sure. world because I deal yeah. with that mostly. And um, I, I would say that there is uh, a willingness to gamble with the doctor's uh, 
frankly, their livelihood. A lot of times these doctors will have minimal insurance policies. In a medical malpractice, it's a lot of money, but it's still, for, for, the, for the harm, it's, it's not, often not enough, but maybe a million, possibly two million in coverage. And the insurance company, in the face of potentially you know, tens or 20, $30 million verdict, they will gamble with the doctor's house, uh, pension fund, retirement, mm-hmm. um, because they do not like to pay claims. And um, yeah, it's been a minute since I practiced law, but back in the day, there was what everybody would call a Holt letter mm-hmm. that you would sign, that you would send, uh, coming from a, a case called Holt years and years and years ago, where if you sent that, it was sort of a warning: we are offering to settle within policy limits. If you if you don't and you get busted. This may be an insurance company problem, not an individual get, defendant problem. You've got the offer of judgment statute, yeah. too, that'll add on to verdicts and those kinds of things. But yeah, what, how does, I mean, does that help? Does that. It, well, it, it helps on collectability because yeah. the insurance company could very well ultimately be responsible if they don't uh, pay, a, pay a, a claim when they have an opportunity to. I mean, there are a number of ways to try and encourage uh, folks to settle. And the legislature's done that with the offer of judgment statute, 91168. To try and so hold up. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wing. <laughs> oh God! I did, I did not know you had that button. Oh yeah, we got some sounders here. We uh, like to use. I will stay away from any more statues. But anyway, the the no, offer. No, no, angels get their wings. When <laughs> yeah, you we're good. Okay, that's good. That's good. It's all cool. Go ahead. So, uh, uh, but yeah, so it's a it's a way of saying, look, here's our demand. Uh, if you don't pay it, then we could potentially, if we get twenty five percent more than we've asked for then you're going to have to pay our attorney's fees. So these little tools we have, one of the most effective ones now is that the fact uh, that unliquidated interest is so high Mm -hmm. uh, because it's it's keyed to the prime. It's prime plus three. So it's now almost, I think, 11%. So we we can make demands and say, look, if you don't pay this amount and we get a verdict, then you're going to be responsible for all that interest. uh, Back at the time. At the time of the demand. That, that, uh, that, uh, Jim Butler got the $1.7 billion verdict. When it, when it got appealed, I heard that the interest was something like $250,000 a day. And I was like, okay, well, that ultimately adds up to pretty serious <laughs> it money. It adds up. Yeah. But, you know, we got, I've got to address that, though, because, yeah. um, you know, these verdicts that make the news, I mean, yeah. Jim Butler's the... You know, he's the goat of uh, products liability in, in Georgia. Sure. And very effective advocate, of course. Um He's not going to get paid one point seven billion dollars. No, no. We, we I mean, what? Right. I, I mean, this may come as a shock, <laughs> but but but, ju- but judges judges have great authority to issue remitters. Right. Um, also, editors, by the way, I got an editor. I, I remind one time. that I I actually got an editor. Did you grant? Did you grant one as a judge? No, no. I I got one oh, as you got a lawyer. One. Well, I got is, the judge to grant one. I may have found the one attorney in the state of Georgia who's got an. Editor. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the case later. But it, it wasn't. It was not. It, on, on my plaintiff's case, my very first plaintiff's case I ever tried that I got in three days before trial. Um, anyway, well, for, for our, story, yeah. we got a jury verdict in our favor in the amount of $1. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was able to convince the judge that they didn't contest uh, the the damages part of the case. So. And it needs to be more than a dollar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Was, so anyway, very quickly, j- just tell my mom. Remember, I, I try to do this podcast so that if my mom understands it, maybe everybody else understands it. Yes. What's an editor? <laughs> so if you get a, a verdict that you believe was below the, you know, the amount that was proved at trial, you can go to the judge and ask the judge to grant the appropriate amount of damages in the case. But there's a catch. 
if they grant it, it's just like with a remediture, what they're really granting is a motion for new trial, unless the parties agree that that amount is the amount. And so it's really a motion for a grant of a motion for new trial with a kicker <laughs> that you get that X amount of dollars and not have another trial. But but so so Jim Jim Butler will probably get a remitter on his. I mean I'm sure it'll come down at some at some level. I think it already has actually. I think it's being argued now. I don't I haven't kept up on it. But uh, yeah. but for the listeners out there, he's not he's not he's not taking his judgment yeah. to the judgment yeah. bank yeah. and getting a cash judgment right. bank. That'd be awesome. Uh, to be a that judgment. would be really cool. That would be. Um, so so let me ask this question because this is kind of the the wraparound question for us and for our audience. So. How do judges fit into all of this? Um, the, the, this idea that, because I, I mean, as a trial lawyer, like when I was trying cases, you know, back before I went on the bench, I just wanted the judge to stay out of my case. Let me try my case, let the other side try their case. But, but from your perspective, I mean, how do judges fit into all of this and, and what should they be doing in order to, you know, make sure that the case gets fairly tried, this issue of damages gets fairly addressed? What, what's your, what's your, take on that. Well, and, and I'm, I'm cautious saying what judges should do. But so, but from, but <laughs> we from, get to say that all you the time. Say that all it's the time. for us. Um, they're an integral part of the process. And uh, the best judges, we had a, a very fine judge who presided over the, the verdict um, I mentioned earlier, uh, the medical malpractice verdict, mm -hmm. and very challenging. What jurisdiction did that come out it's of? Ful Fulton, was it a Fulton? Fulton State. Um, uh, judge Richardson was the presiding oh, judge, yeah, sure. but but he had a courtroom uh, almost like Judge McAfee's courtroom is going to be mm -hmm. <laughs> with all the indictments and the mm -hmm. and the politics lately. And uh, uh, but he had almost every defense lawyer in town. Uh, and it was, there were multiple cases uh, being presented. There was a case, the radiology case, the ER case, the uh, you know the critical care case, all these different pieces. Uh, and he he got out in front of it with uh, motions hearings early decisions early uh, and then stay deeply involved at every step and paid attention. I mean, sometimes we'll be, I'll, I'll be giving closing argument and I'll hear papers rustling behind me and the judge will be, you know, you know, signing things right. and reading and put, looking for books and talking to his There was clerk. a judge I remember who used to scrapbook on the bench scrap and I did not think that was appropriate during trial really. Well, but my, most, most of the trial judges are doing it because they enjoy it. And, 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 in state court, they deal a lot with medical malpractice cases. I think they kind of appreciate the the interesting components of a med mal case compared to the maybe the, the more garden variety car wreck cases. So, um, well, and I can tell you from a judge's standpoint, the well tried case is a pleasure. You know, as a judge, just watching good lawyers do a great job trying a, a really complex case, it's just a great pleasure because we were, you know, we we were trial attorneys. We did trials, and it's the just, bad it's just the bad news is we don't see it often. Yeah. <laughs> now I do have some good lawyers. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not no, throwing no. everybody out with the bathwater, but we see ill prepared, thrown together stuff far more often than we see well prepared good lawyers. Well, let me ask this before we wrap up. Any, any final thoughts? Any things that 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 come to mind that you just think are going to be important going forward on on trials that you know. We're going to be doing in civil cases. Yeah, we, the, the the concern and sort of the trial community right now is uh, there's there's whispers. I think uh, Governor Kemp uh, was addressing the Chamber of Commerce. It was talking about you know possibly uh, uh, trying to advance laws to further restrict the right to a jury trial, so called tort reform, which which is code for you know taking power away from juries and 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 
and basically uh, restricting the, what a jury can do with their verdict. So I, I think uh, you know going forward, that's going to be an issue with the legislature. Um, I remind my friends uh, on all sides of the political spectrum, you know, there are more amendments than the first one and the second one. You got to keep going. And, and when, you get to, when you get to number seven, that's the one that guarantees a right to a civil jury trial. And it's as important as all the other ones. So um, uh, I think it's going to be a challenge this year to to protect the right to a jury trial. But uh, um, I think uh, we've got we've got strong advocates uh, fighting for the justice system. So I think we'll be in good shape. Well, we are really honored to have somebody of your abilities and your experience come here and, and share with this audience. One more time, remind them of where they can find your podcast. <laughs> well, that's, that's nice of you to let me put a plug in, but it's called Face the Jury. It's on all the platforms, uh, Apple, Spotify, any place you listen to podcasts. So uh, exactly um, where the good judgment podcast <laughs> exactly. is. Exactly. And that's a great segue, Wayne, <laughs> into if you have anything that you would like to tell the good judgment podcast, a, 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 a compliment, an objection, an idea for a topic, please reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Or if you have a good chicken chimichanga recipe, I'm really looking for one of those. <laughs> um, it would be great. And the only other thing I would say is, is Wade, uh, we really need to get some podcast cozies or something. Swag. swag. Some kind of swag. swag we need some swag. Guys. Probably people can you, get, can you get promotions on the phone? I'll get them right on the phone. Thank Stand you very by. much. I do that. want to say real quick before we sign off, I, I enjoy very much your podcast. Um, I spent a lot of time in the car, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting perspective. A lot of judges aren't aren't really willing to peek behind the curtain and, and, and talk about how they think about things. So well, this thank is you. Great it, service. It I makes really us seem, we love it. It makes us seem less impressive, but still at the same time, uh, <laughs> oh, you're still pretty impressive. It's, it's who we are. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's absolutely who we are. Well, we're going to do one more thing uh, yeah. that has so become we have, a tradition. It's become here. a thing. So, so we wanted people <laughs> to listen all the way to the end to hear our credits and that kind of stuff. And we started doing music trivia not long ago, and this has become wildly popular. Okay, so, wildly is a is a relative. Well, term. of both of our listeners, of they our are listeners very, love they're it. for it. They love it. So. so, Tane, take it away. Now, you have not read this. I one. have not read it. So, yeah, take it away. All right. Recently, the music world lost one of our icons, the leader of the Parrot Heads, the mayor of Margaritaville, and the son of a son of a sailor, Jimmy Buffett. Oh, R.I.P. Jimmy, man. Uh, he passed away on September the 1st, 2023 at the young age of 76. Mr. Buffett described his style of music in the 1970s as drunken Caribbean rock and roll, which I think is accurate. But later in life, he described his genre as golf and Western. See what he did there? Golf, yeah, I know. Golf, I love Not that. country and Western. So for some Buffett trivia right now, I think that's what we need. So do you know the name of his backing band? Of course. Coral Reefer band. Very good. Y'all, he did not look that look. I did not, man. I, but I've been, I've seen them many, many See times. what they did there, the play of words. Yeah, I, so awesome. See what they did there. That's right. Um, Buffett's music had a great deal of appeal on the country charts as well as on the pop charts. And that may be because of his upbringing. So your question is, where was Jimmy Buffett born and where was he raised? I think I know the answer read, to this. Read this. Uh, the rest, next part. Hint, it was not in the Caribbean islands and it was not in the Florida Keys. Was he from Muscle Shoals, Alabama? No? Is that your final answer? That, that's my final answer. All right, now read. Oh, Pascagoula, Mississippi. 
He was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama. So he was born in Pascagoula. Born in Pascagoula, but he was raised in uh, Mobile, Alabama. So, okay, one last question um, that is sure to plant an earworm, oh no, for the rest of your day. In the song Margaritaville, what did he sing about getting a tattoo of? A Mexican cutie. Sing it in your head before you give up. Yep, it was a Mexican cutie. I was right. All right. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for tuning in to the Good Judgment Podcast. Be sure to like us on your favorite platform. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success and that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.